Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill, and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. My guest today developed a course on how to buy a good business at a great price that has sold over 100,000 copies and has over 200 published articles to his credit. Ray Dalio hired him to teach one of his sons the art of buying small businesses, and he's appeared in Forbes, The New York Times, TheStreet.com, Entrepreneur Magazine, and Inc. Magazine. His mission is simple. It's to help people realize their dreams of business ownership. Richard, welcome to the show today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So you've got a pretty interesting background there. Um, well, well, we're going to talk. Let's first get the Ray Dalio piece out of the equation. So people, and for those who don't know Ray Dalio, give us a little background on who he is with uh, and his hedge fund and the success. And then tell us a little bit about your backstory, how you got into working with Ray Dalio. And then we'll, at some point, we'll probably cover how you got into this business to begin with. Okay, perfect. Happy to do so. Um, Ray Dalio started, operated the largest hedge fund in the world called Bridgewater. And anybody who has any uh, exposure to the financial world knows him. He's the, uh, I guess he's considered the uh, the icon, the godfather in the hedge fund world, uber successful. Um, He's, uh, I think he's rated as the most successful investor ever as far as returning money to uh, to investors. For me, it's very different. My view of him, he's just my buddy's dad. And so I see him with a different lens. And uh, he hired me in 2007 to mentor his son, Devin, uh, to help him buy a business. Devin ultimately decided after probably about six months, they were just starting their family office at that time, which only had a few employees. Now it probably has 150 and that's family office that manages their family's wealth. And um, Devin went back to the family office. He became the co-CEO, ran that business for many, many years. And then in 2017, decided that he was going to leave that. And he uh, wanted to satisfy his entrepreneurial itch, as he used to say, and wanted to get into acquiring businesses. And uh, he and Ray approached me with the idea of going into partnership and opening up an investment company where I could mentor Devin and teach him how to uh, acquire businesses. 
and we worked together. Well, I was going to say side by side, but face on. Or we had one office. We we didn't. We had several offices, but we decided we loved sharing an office, so we sat straight across from each other and worked for several years together. And he and I were very very close on a personal level, um, close like brothers, and uh, had a uh, terrific business, wonderful relationship. And, and unfortunately, on December seventeenth, twenty twenty, he was killed in a car accident, mm-hmm. and um, we had made a number of investments. And uh, at that point, we decided to wound, wind down the business. The business was stood up for Devin. Uh, Ray was our only investor. I guess when you have an investor like Ray, you don't need other investors. Ray was, right. uh, but but <laughs> but you know, Ray let excuse me. Ray let us do our own thing. He was he was great. I mean, we couldn't have scripted a better investor. He let us do our own thing and find our way as we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do. Um, we kept our investments, and unfortunately, Devin's passing, which was devastating for, of course, for myself, his family. Uh, I mean, my my. Uh, the impact on me was was uh, uh, crushing, but nowhere near what, of course, his his parents and his siblings and other family members felt, and uh, it was uh, just a horrific, horrific situation. And I, uh, you know, so when you ask me about Ray, Ray is uh, Ray's my buddy's dad, and he's got yeah. these wonderful accomplishments. And you know, people people are always curious and ask me, am I intimidated or whatever? I mean, I hold him in awe because of his accomplishments, but I'm certainly not intimidated because we have a this magnificent relationship that we continue to have to this day, and we we share. You know, um, we're able to share a lot of stories about Devin because Devin and I spent. We used to joke, Devin and I, we spent more time with each other than we did with our spouses, and it's not because we don't love our spouses. We were just very involved in work and very very close, and. And so, uh, you know, my relationship with the with the family is, uh, you know, we're bound to each other for eternity because of the uh, Devin's uh, tragic accident. But um, he's uh, Ray is a, a a wonderful, wonderful man. He's uh, just a down to earth one of the boys. He just happens to be uh, uber successful, but he's yes. he's just a down to earth, humble, wonderful guy, and fair and generous, and you know, incredibly philanthropic. And my my relationship to him, with him on on the business side was. You know, on a scale of one to ten, was probably a twenty. Wow. Well, I have to say, um, and a little plug for his book, which I believe is called Principles. I Principles, listened yes. to it, and I highly recommend listening to it. I did not finish it. It was a very voluminous book, but listening to him read the book and his voice, the authenticity, the warmth that comes through that he's just such a genuine person. And also the smarts and the things that they did at Bridgewater to uh, the, the algorithms and the analytics that they used early on were, were so sophisticated and, and so proprietary, as I understand it, that it really made him, uh, it exalted him, I think, in a lot of people's eyes. And uh, for those who don't know it, highly recommend checking out that book. It is it's not so much of a leadership tome as it is a uh, philosophical uh, philosophy on life. Um, you probably it's can a good say operating manual. Yeah, right? I mean, it's you know, it's it's it, and it's a, your assessment is pretty cool because it's it's more like an operating manual and like if you do a Venn diagram of life, business, right. and relationships, yes, it's sort of like at the it's it like that that becomes principles is is the uh, is the intersection of all those. And, um, you know, I read it, of course, he, he sent me a beautiful signed copy with a very meaningful message um, that I'll keep private. But, you know, reading the book and, and having experienced we when Devin and I, Devin is rest in peace, him and I worked together, we reported to the family office, but we operated independently. But we took a lot of um, 
operational procedures from the family office because which mirrored Bridgewater to a large extent because they were so effective. But the amount of learning that took place was incredible. And it's a constant quest for learning. And there's a couple of cool stories when when we um, first met. Ray and I spoke a number of times. Devin and I had worked together. We'd always stayed in touch. And then we finalized our agreement. Our agreement took was, was very quick. We did it on a Sunday in about 10 minutes. And then decided to go into, uh, I mean, really, tr- wow. truly, and I might even, be, I might even be exaggerating at that when we decided to go into business together. And then we met just to put some final touches on a few things. And one of the things we were talking about, Ray brought up was, you know, t- take me through your strengths and weaknesses was a question that I was asked by him. I said, well, I've got a love, I, I got a lot of weaknesses that that list is much longer than the strengths. And he sort of banged his hand on the table and he said, we love weaknesses, you know, because there's, <laughs> because they're, you know, they, they really work to bolster people's weaknesses and, right. and enhance their strengths. And, you know, one of the things which for me worked incredibly well, I'm, I'm a very blunt guy. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just probably too old and too tired to beat around the bush at this stage, but I've always been this way. And, and I appreciate honesty in people in pe- from people and like to think that I've skin as thick as a Buick. So I'm able to operate when people like, I, I much prefer people to just straight up fun. You know, if there's an issue, just punch me in the face with it. Cause I want to know. And so we could deal with it and settle it. And mm-hmm. that's really, you know, common throughout um, Bridgewater, the family office and the relationships and dealing with people. If there's an issue, you deal with it head on office politics. Like they're non-existent. Zero. You have Amazing. a problem with somebody. And, and I had one issue very early on. It got, I mean, bang dealt with addressed, resolved solved for like wow. instantaneously so that for me and you know some people have trouble with that that's really amazing because so many companies deal with politics and you know, i'm a big fan of, of pat lencioni and he's uh written many books that basically oftentimes are dealing with office politics because of the lack of health in a team and it sounds like part of Bridgewater's success, besides their research and incredible analytics, was the fact that they they all played so aggressively on the same team and they were able to eliminate office politics. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I can't comment so much from Bridgewater because I worked with the family office, yes. but that spilled over. And I think you know maybe my choice of words of saying bluntness or whatever, the, the overarching umbrella to all of that is just honesty. It's yeah. referred to as radical transparency by yeah. Ray. It's become a buzzword, exactly. a very popular term. You know, I, I interpret it as just being honest with people, because if you're if you could be upfront and not worry that if you say something that you're, you know, office politics spill in, people are worried your jobs are going to be at stake. And, you know, one of the first things that I alluded to earlier when we when Ray embraced the and, and the family office embraces weaknesses, you don't worry about your job. I mean, if there's an issue, you deal with it. And if you screw up, you admit it and you fix it. And right. if someone else screwed up and they shouldn't have, you address it. And they're not worried about losing their job. So they fix it. And and so as a team, like, like the politics, even though, you know, Devin and I, we operated independently, we were exposed to it and, and reported to the family office. I mean, if you can embrace that. It's, I mean, it's brilliant. It's like all of a sudden the sun shines every day because you're not worried about something lurking over your shoulder. If there's an issue, I remember reading years ago this book um, or a statement by Ross Perot from EDS when he sold his company to, um, I think he sold it to General Motors or okay. a big part. And he was talking about the situation. He said, you know, if at, if at EDS, if someone sees a snake in the hall, you kill the snake. 
Right. He said at General Motors, if there's a snake in the hall, they assemble a, and put together a committee on snakes. <laughs> Right. And so, and, and that was like, you know, it was, it was like the same thing in my um, exposure with the family office. And, and certainly that um, worked its way into my relationship with Devin. He was, he was the smartest, nicest man that I'd ever met. The combination of the two and our relationship went far beyond transactional. It was a, a beautiful personal relationship. We shared everything with each other, but there was, was always honest. There was never any judging. And so it, you know, when you operate in that way, and I, I always have, so when you, you find yourself in a work situation, cause I, I, I gave up my M and a work and I went to work full time with the family office for four years and you, you, um, you're used to a certain way of working and all of a sudden this is, this is the way they operate with complete transparency and honesty and, 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 and with an agenda to just everybody be better collectively. I mean, for me, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable how wonderful it was. So, so you, uh, let's talk about your street credibility. Cause obviously you had a lot of it for Ray Dalio to pick you or, and, and for Devin to pick you. Tell us a little bit about your background in M&A and then, and then I want to talk about uh, your book a little bit. Okay, so I've been doing in the world of M&A for 34 years. I started buying and selling my own businesses when I was quite young, as 29 years old, and I did it out of a matter of necessity, like most entrepreneurs um, who fail at something and pick themselves up and have to uh, regroup. I was working for a company. I was doing very well. It was in 1990. I was 29, making $72,000 a year, which was almost ridiculous, probably triple what most of my friends and colleagues were making at that point with a very fast-growing consumer products company in Canada that had gone public. And through my brilliance and the advice of, of uh, some other brilliant people, I managed to blow $60,000 in the stock market buying on margin, which sounded great when people told me you only have to put up half the money. And when you sell the stock, you get all the money, but they don't, they don't tell you when you, when the stock shits the bed, pardon my French. Yeah. And so, um, so here I was $60,000 in debt. My first kid on the way, I have four children now, one grandchild. And, uh, I couldn't figure out, like, I was trying to think of, about how am I going to get out of this mess? And, just changing jobs. I didn't want to change jobs. I loved my job. Um, even if I would have moved somewhere, so I would have get slightly more money. That was a possible, you know, possibility, but didn't really make a whole lot of sense. And as I tell the story to people have asked me a number of times, I always tell them some of my options were I can go to Las Vegas, put it all in 17 black and see what, whatever money I had left. So you give that a rip or right. I could just buy a lot of lotto tickets and I don't play the lotto. So neither one of those, and I don't gamble. So either, neither one of those two um, don't work. I, I guess I gamble or take risk in, in business, but I don't gamble at the, at the casinos. And then recognize that the only way that I could do this, recover the money, because I had a little bit of money left, not much, was I had to get into my own business. I had to be put myself into a situation where I didn't have a ceiling on my earnings because I had to recapture the $60,000 you know, after tax money and, um, and with a child on the way, and I didn't want to spend the next, you know, 15 years paying this off or trying to recapture it. Like some people do with student debt. And it was just not the scenario that I wanted. So I ended up going, making the decision that I was going to go into my own business. And I continued along the veins of, of what I was doing, the consumer products business. And, um, quite early afterwards, I started looking at opportunities to grow the business. It was a small business, but it was doing okay. I was able to make pretty much a little, little, a little bit more than I had been making before. Not much, but I saw the path was, was good mm -hmm. and it was just going to take time. And as I was looking and growing the business, again, it was in consumer products as a manufacturer's rep and distributor. Started looking and say, Hey, you know, I think I can grow this business much quicker through acquisitions than I can organically. 
Okay. I mean, there may be there may be a lot of gratification for organic building, but acquisitions, I can grow this thing. So I started looking at ancillary businesses that I could bolt on to my then existing business and I was selling for, to retailers. For little money, I guess. Yeah, for little money. I didn't have much. Right. And so and so I found and I my my clientele were were the large um retailers in Canada, like the, the Canadian version of what you know, Walmart and Home Depots and that type of thing. Big, big buck, big retailers. And uh, Walmart wasn't even in Canada at that point. And I, I, what was a problem was every time I'd sell merchandise in one of these retailers and I went to see the displays, they never looked anywhere near as nice as I presented them to the buyer or the buyer had them in their showroom because customers were either store staff wasn't putting them up properly. Or I was doing ad, uh, ad events. The merchandise wasn't even getting onto the floor. And so we developed this, this, um, retail merchandising where we'd go into the stores and make sure our goods, my goods were put into the shelves properly, but I was doing it in a very limited geographical area. And there was others in the business that were doing it as well. Very, very small pockets of geography across the country. And Canada is a big country, bigger than the U S with mm -hmm. 10% of the population. So you can imagine the way these stores are spread out. Yeah. And I started to think that that was going to be the future of retail. Like as a supplier, you would have to make sure you own the goods until they don't, until someone buys them and they don't return them. And that's still, the, you know, still what uh, vendors face. And so I bought a, um, a small retail merchandising company that was based in the east um, east coast of Canada. When I say I bought it, I it was I couldn't afford to buy the company, but I convinced the owner to roll in his business with mine, and then okay. we would have like a good. We would then have a Eastern Canada covered, except for Ontario, which was a huge market, and that worked quite well. He was a a, a bright guy, had some good systems, and said, "You know what? We got to, to really make a mark. We got to roll this out across Canada." and started looking for companies that were doing something similar, albeit on a very small basis, but they right. could have the personnel and, and bought um, four, three other companies and rolled them in and suddenly had a national presence. And that uh, stunky little business that really was out of pocket was less than a hundred grand turned into a four and a half million dollar business. And keeping in mind, you know, when you figure Canada versus us, that would be like the equivalent of a $45 million business in the United States. And this was in, in the 1990s. It was pretty significant. That's amazing. And we were, it was amazing. And we were selling labor, right? So, right. So the, the margins were obscene. And you learned growth through acquisition is a much faster path than a uh, path. I should say than organic growth. That's and the light so, went on. Exactly. And so then it just continued and you just continue doing M and a, it, but outside of that industry, I assume in other other yes. businesses. I did some other, other businesses. I learned some uh, terrific lessons when I bought businesses that I wasn't skilled to operate and they mm -hmm. went sour pretty quickly. And that's mm -hmm. a big part of what I teach because you may be a good operator, but you have to marry your best skill set to a business that needs it when you're going to take over a business. Because right. if you just, you know, and one of the things that people do is they confuse expertise with experience just because you've been experienced in the healthcare industry doesn't mean you should buy a healthcare in business. It's Correct. what you've done in healthcare. And so I ca carried on till 1996 and I ended up uh, getting the rights, the distribution rights for Eastern Canada for Sega Video. My servicing company helped uh, someone um, uh, do a study that they were able to present to Sega that they should change their distribution in Canada. And I acquired the Eastern Canadian rights and that business exploded. My business went from like a couple of, couple of million dollars a year to $30 million pretty quickly. Um, and not, not, nothing to do with my brain. This, mm -hmm. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, I take zero credit. I was just, oh I was just, I was just really lucky, like really lucky. 
And um, and I ended up selling my business back to Sega. And I, I, I knew that would happen because when you have those type of relationships with a uh, manufacturer company and you're just, you know, a small part of the distribution, as soon as you get too big, they typically want to take it in-house. And when that happened... And uh, I decided to move to South Florida and my kids were young and I wanted to get out of freezing cold winters in Montreal. Of course. And, well, Why of course. Not? Yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, obviously, right? Right. right. <laughs> obviously, who wants to shovel slow, snow till they die? Yeah. And uh, I moved to Florida and I got involved in a uh, one, one enterprise just for a sh- more, more as a bridge. And then I started looking at uh, businesses to acquire again, getting my, I got my feet settled down here. And um, I, I was close to making an acquisition. It wasn't a big one. It was about a little over a million dollars. And I don't say it wasn't a big one to be belittling or dismissive. It just, you know, wasn't a massive. It was a nice small business. Mm-hmm. And um, they, were the, they were the South Florida um, distributors for Maytag commercial washers and dryers and, and, and uh, sold to laundromats, dormitories, et cetera. Okay. They also had a component. They also had a component where they put their machines right into dormitories and condominiums and, and collected the revenue, did a revenue share. And I like the business. I, I like, like the that uh, business model. Recurring, yeah, I like the bu- somewhat yeah. of a recurring revenue without the subscription, but without the subscription, it was a bit, yeah, exactly. So your your uh, your assessment, your quick assessment, is it was exactly yeah. my assessment, yeah. And then when I started digging into the business, the financials because they had a, a number of different companies: one that did parts and service, one that did repair, one that did the put the machines into the condos and uh, dormitories, and another one that sold the machines, right? The washers and dryers. Mm-hmm. The owner, and I'm not suggesting that he could, was committing fraud, but he was commingling everything. I mean, there was revenue coming. If he needed money for one business, he was taking it out of one, paying salaries oh, yeah, out of another. Yes, the, the whole thing looked like a pile of spaghetti, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I and I just couldn't get to the bottom of it. There, were, there was no way I can get to the bottom and figure it out because I wasn't taking the, I wasn't going to take the business that put the that, that took, put the current machines into those condos and dormitories I could on a going forward basis. Right. But I just couldn't make sense of it. And I'm reasonably bright. I'm not the sharpest guy in the room, but I'm reasonably bright related to numbers. And it was just, uh, it was just a mess. So I decided I was, I was going to rescind the offer. And I told the owner, he wasn't very happy, but I, I was actually at his place when I told him and I walked outside the building and I was standing, it was in Broward County, Florida, where Fort Lauderdale, in Fort Lauderdale. And I remember standing outside of the building and thinking to myself, you know, the average schmuck would have bought that business. And it's only because I've done this, you know, six, seven, eight times before that I was able to see where the skeletons and the bodies were and, and, and what were, what was problematic and what, you know, where, where one and one equaled minus five, like it mm-hmm. were, it was only from experience. And it really started to pique my interest about what does the average person do who's considering buying a business, who has the energy, the desires, the hopes, and the dreams, but doesn't have the acumen. And what do right. they do to go about this process? Because you know, on one side of the equation was the average person, there's not a doubt in my mind, would have bought that business. And so I, I was lucky. I was, you know... I was able to take some time off and I devoted the next, pretty much the next year to researching the whole low, real low end M&A market. When I say low end Main Street USA, businesses that are going to be bought and sold up to about, you know, it could be up to about $10 million, but really geared for the, the individual investor because that was the person that I had real empathy for. Right. Um, you know, PE firm makes a PE firm makes a yep. mistake. You know, that's their cost of goods. Someone right. who goes out and buys a business and takes their life savings and that's puts true. it into it. Exactly. They're finished. You know, yep. they could be finished. So I really Got had it. a, you know, really was my, my heart was really in, in their shoes. 
And what I learned was there was nothing to help them, like nothing meaningful. Business brokers, and I do business brokers, so I'm, I'm, if I'm saying anything disparaging, I'm, I'm, I'm saying disparaging uh, things about my own trade. Business brokers, by and large, don't help them. They're not interested. They don't care if someone buys the right business. They just care if they buy a business. Correct. Um, there's not a lot of accountants that are I really suited to, suited to do valuations for small businesses. They focus all on the assets and people yep. need to buy an income stream. Yeah. And um, attorneys, you know, the attorneys have the role, but they're the last people that you should have in at, in the room to negotiate the deal. Right. And the, and the internet was really it still it was then in its infancy infancy, but there was just a pile of bad information and now it's to the power of a thousand. I mean, these misinformation, bad information, generic information or misleading information. But going back in time, I said, Hey, there's nothing for these, for these people. And I, I had looked at hundreds of businesses over the years and kept great notes of what everything that happened. If I did this, what happened? If I, if that, if what was the outcome, if it was a bad outcome, what did I do? If it was a good outcome, kept great notes. I said, you know what, I'm going to put this into a course. I just going to, you know, to, where I can memorialize everything that I've learned to date and put it into some material where I could help people that could teach them what they need to know, what to do and how to do it. And the other part that I learned during all of my research was people that were looking to buy a business, even if they found any information that may be helpful at all, they needed handholding because you could digest this information, but they really needed someone to, to march them through the process and be their Sherpa and uh, put up guardrails for them when they, they were going off, you know, when they're making yeah. mistakes. Yep. And so I said, you know, my goal with this, I, I'm going to help anybody. I'm not even going to charge them. I just, you know, I, I love this business and I love helping people. So I put this course together and the night before we launched it, which was April 23rd, 2001. I can't believe it. Mm -hmm. My wife asked me the night before, how many think you're going to sell? And keep in mind, 2001, the internet was like, was like, uh, like antiquated right. compared to now. And my wife asked me, how many think you're going to sell? I said, you know, I, I really just hope I sell one. Like if I sell one and help someone buy the right business or avoid buying the wrong one, like that's good enough for me. You know, like I'll, I'll, I'm happy to have done it. And, um, and that was my agenda then. It still is now. I just, I can't even believe we sold over a hundred thousand copies. Is it a, was it a book back then? Was it a video course? Was it a DVD? What a CD? What was it back then? And what a is book it and a floppy disk. Okay. And what is it today? <laughs> is it an e-course that you can Download digital. on demand. Yeah, it's all digital. Um, right. I used to, yeah, there was no digital books. There was no downloads. I, 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 it was typed up. I took it, printed it at Kinko's. I'm really aging myself, which became FedEx office, ended up buying yep. them. But I yep. printed it at Kinko's. Someone ordered it. I printed them up. I put them in a binder from someone else, and I shipped it to them via UPS. The thing weighs nine pounds. There have been lots of updates over the years, and I developed a, a magnificent valuation. But the nice thing is um, it's still helping people. And I still, I spend my days answering calls and emails. And I don't That's charge great. people. That's great. And I get, and we've got tens of thousands of success stories. So I've bought a lot of businesses. I've done some really nice things and some fun things in my life. And, and I've been very blessed and I've made plenty of big, ridiculous mistakes. Well, well let's I, get but, into the talking about that. But let me ask you, why is now the best time in three decades to buy a business, do you think? Well, I think it's what what I'm what I like to refer to as beautiful upheaval. There was so much um, carnage going on in the marketplace and uncertainty. Some of it um, correct, some of it just imagined, if you will. But let's mm -hmm. talk about the real stuff, which is you know increasing interest rates. Number one, which always makes leverage very difficult in these businesses or challenging. 
Mm-hmm. The second, the second piece is we've gone through the, the years after COVID. Nothing has really normalized because if you go back and look at financials of a company during those COVID years, there's there's no rhyme or reason. Some companies did great, other companies did terrible, and it's hard to really measure what what resembles reality. Like does 2019 more closely right. resemble reality, or does right. today? Right. And so, and, and so, some some companies and some of my clients were only profitable because of the government handout money, which is kind of kind of crazy. Well, it's kind of crazy and it, and it's, but it's very common. Right. And so for an individual buyer looking at something and say, Hey, you know, I may, I'm willing to base my price on, on the past. I'm thinking about today, but I'm buying this for the future. I have no way to even closely predict what it's going to look like based on what I'm seeing here. Cause there there was, it was a roller coaster, right? Some Mm -hmm. companies, just consumer products companies, some of them, you know, are get taking a haircut of 30, 20, 30, 40% because of the increase in COVID certain industries went bonkers. Like, you know, I know, I'm not sure if this is a G rated show, but like the, you know, like, like adult toy business went through the roof. Right. right. Everybody's stuck at home. Right. right. Those businesses dropped like 20, 30 <laughs> percent and more. And, and there are other businesses that went the other way. And so when you take a look at these where you can't really get your head around what the consistency is in, in, in financials and in, in, in revenue and, um, and earnings, because the, the years were so choppy and, and, um, and inconsistent, yeah. the interest rates going up takes a lot of people out of the market. And, you know, there's always this looming threat of a recession and nobody really knows. Well, all of that, what happens is that's all bad for the seller, right? Yeah. All bad for the seller right. because it, it, re, it reduces the buyer pool exponentially because people say, well, I'm not going to, you know, an SBA loan is 11% today. So people say, well, I'll sit on the sidelines. So the buyer pool shrinks and yep. supply and demand when there's less buyers, Right, it's a buyer's market. Yeah, right? it's not a seller's market. And is market. the SBA so, really at eleven percent these days? Yes, because I haven't tracked today, that in years. Yeah, that's so amazing. Today, that's the highest a, I've ever heard it. It's Wall Street Journal pl- uh, uh, rate plus right. two and a quarter to two point seven five is the high today. As we're talking about, I don't want to date our our time together, but it's as we talk together. I think it's eleven and a quarter, eleven and a half percent. That's crazy. So, yeah, it's okay. it's, it's whack. But but you know what? When you think about it this week, it is very high. Mm-hmm. compared to what we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. But also look at it this way. The difference in between getting a loan at that rate versus 6% and an SBA loan, because mm-hmm. it's amortized over 10 years, every million dollars costs you $40,000 a year extra. Right. It's not that crazy. So mm-hmm. all you need to do is go back and get the seller either to lower the price, because when the buyer pool shrinks, it's right. a buyer's market, right. your terms and even performance-based deals and saying, hey, this is what you did in the past, but you can't even prove consistency. We need to have a big earnout component to make sure that this revenue remains the same. Plus the interest rates are gone bonkers. So I can't finance the whole thing. The banks are giving you less leverage. At some point in the heyday, they're leveraging you know, four, three, four times the earnings. Now it's one to two. So sellers have to file, uh, uh, finance a bigger portion of the transaction. And so all these things are just incredibly favorable for buyer terms, for the astute buyer who looks at them and say, Hey, that 40 grand that everybody's panicking about paying extra to the SBA, right? I can just go back to the seller and say, you, I'm not taking a million dollar loan with the SBA. I'll take a seven, I'll take a $700,000 loan with the SBA. You finance 300,000. I'm not paying you anything. I want a holiday on that for a year or two, or I'm only going to pay you interest for a year or two right? At a lower rate. Right. And if they want to sell their business, that's what they've got to, a seller's got to do to get it to the finish line. So from a buyer's perspective, I think it's just a beautiful time to buy. Amazing. So if it's so favorable, then why did 90% of the people who begin to search 
to buy a business never complete a deal. What, Pretty crazy what, statistic, right? Yeah, crazy. Also crazy, like know. like devastating. I mean, it's really so, uh, it's crazy. And there's no and there you can't argue with the numbers. And what happens is people go into this process. Let's say you were thinking about a buying buying a business, and you're obviously you've written a book, maybe other books, you run podcasts, you're a successful guy, you have a, a level of business acumen. But what do you know about buying businesses if you haven't bought them? Mm-hmm. And so people who look at this, their first inclination was, how hard could this be? It's like, right. Maybe it's like buying a piece of property. They're right. going to go online, they're going to look at businesses for sale, and mm-hmm. they'll speak to a business broker, and a business broker is going to help them and guide them and massage them and tell them how wonderful they are, and mm-hmm. the financing, and then they, you know, and they... They, they jump into this process and they start, first of all, most people have no idea what business is right for them. And so they start looking, spending countless hours searching business for sale listings, have no idea what business is right for them. And they, they make no progress or they start getting in contact with sellers and the numbers don't match up or the brokers don't respond to them or they can't figure out how to value the business or they don't know how to go through due diligence. And there's 23 steps in the process and they start going through this because they're misinformed and they start looking at this process and they start going through it and they realize in short, or, short order or long order, they've made no progress. Right. They don't even know how to make an offer. There's nobody to help them. Right. And so when you go through the list of why the failure rate is so high, First of all, lack of knowledge, lack of experience, lack of expertise, and knowing where to get the resources. And you also have now on the internet this proliferation of this complete bullshit programs. People out there say, buy a $250,000 cash flowing business for no money down, close the deal in 30 days. Mm-hmm. It's like the hucksters. It's real scam artists. Yeah. And so people, and they sell them for thousands and tens of thousands, thousands of dollars. So people get sucked into this thing. And so you have that combination and with lack of knowledge, let's just call it a complete lack of knowledge and, and the internet with bad information, but, but, but put into the bucket of lack of knowledge. Then it's the piece of the right business. If you don't know what business is right for you, no matter how many businesses you look at or think it's a good business, you don't even know if it's right, if you're the right person to operate it. So you start getting concerned, I can't operate this business. And then the third part, why people, um, why the rates are, uh, so, the failure rate is so high is a lot of people are looking for a perfect business and it doesn't exist. Yeah. Every business has warts. Every business has blemishes. That's the life of an entrepreneur. You can't treat the incidents as catastrophes or the catastrophes as incidents, but understanding that it's not going to be perfect and you have to solve for some of these. And that's, you know, there's, you can mitigate the risk significantly, but there's always going to be a little bit of it and it's never going to be perfect. So when you take those three pieces of it and the the, the lack of knowledge clearly being at the top of the pyramid, right. it's like a recipe for disaster. And let's look at the flip side of the coin here. What percent of buyers, I mean, of sellers that go to market to sell their business never end up selling? And I guess to look at the data, if, if you even know what it is, you'd have to look at the entire universe on a, maybe a website like bizbysell.com or something like that, where all the mom and pop, uh, liquor store, grocery stores, um, handyman uh, businesses, they don't sell because they don't have any value. But would you would you say that two-thirds of them or more never even sell at all? They just bingo. Yeah. Bingo. The number the number is 75%, which is uh talked about. So it may be worse, right? Right. 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 But right. you know, and I know from you know business broker friends or some of that run 
big, big companies, and I say business brokers because they're doing Main Street USA businesses, the ones that you just gave examples of, mm-hmm. and business brokers, while they only sell 10% of all businesses, they control pretty much all the business for sale websites. Yes. And though the average um, uh, brokers will, will, 75% of their listings won't sell. And they shouldn't sell because they're garbage businesses. Right. And and so so you hear you have a thing, like think about this universe, right? You have people that are not prepared for this process, searching in areas that don't offer the best selection of businesses that are available for sale, selecting from a group of garbage businesses. Like how could the statistics not be abysmal? I mean, it's, it's like impossible not to be terrible. Terrible, unbelievable. Terrible. I mean, we're then, a little lucky, by the yeah. way, like, you know, 82% of our clients who follow our course and use our consulting buy businesses in six months. It's pretty crazy. That is it amazing. Is- and and there's so many things that can go wrong if you own already an existing business and you're buying a competitor or an ancillary business. I mean, that's challenging in and of itself as well, because there's, I think the reason why is the integration of the cultures of the two organizations. They're oftentimes a misfit. And it's that, that at least on a larger level with the big companies, you know, the Hewlett Packards buying compact computers and of that size type deals, the cultural integration fails. And I w- so I think what, your assessment, your well, I would, you know, as you were talking, and I, I started thinking about it, it was a couple of years ago, I would say that your assessment is so spot on because the single biggest issue plaguing large PE firms, big institutional buyers, mm-hmm. is the transition. They acquire a business, and especially when they acquire a, they have a portfolio company, and that company has to get used to a new culture. They're still operating the business, but there's new systems. There's new reporting in place. That gets magnified when that portfolio company starts to buy companies to add you know, top line and bottom line. And that integration, the transition and the integration is a massive issue. They've gotten much better at recognizing it. There's some companies now that do nothing but focus on planning for the transition. It's like, it's like the, um, you know, the new president during the, uh, gets his, uh, his team in place yes. for his, for his or her inauguration. And you see it less on the lower level. So that's, that's actually a, a good thing on the higher level, definitely. Cause people are setting their ways, there's culture, whatever, but on the lower level, oftentimes when there's that type of acquisition between competitors and some of the businesses that you were talking about, oftentimes an owner leaves, they make an acquisition and, you know, the, the ancillary business that they're buying, oftentimes that owner just retires or, or they get them out pretty quickly. And it's not as there may be some cultural issues and it's, they certainly, they certainly do exist, but you can resolve them oftentimes quicker because there's a new sheriff in town. You know, you own a business, mm-hmm. you're in the HVAC business and you've got a successful business. Now you're buying another HVAC company. And if they're short order, you realized, you know, I bought this guy's company, this, you know, company's good, but he's driving me bonkers. Right. 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 I just got to throw him out. Get him right. Out I got to pay him whatever and get him, exactly. get him out of there. That's much easier to do than a company that got 400 employees. Right. So, yes. uh, so I, it's, it's, it's problematic, but it's less so you can, you can absorb a pro a, a challenging um, acquisition mm-hmm. better actually on the smaller end in my view. Interesting. Now, is any of that, what we just talked about covered in your course, in your book? Yes. So there's the, the process of buying a business 
is going to repeat itself over and over again. You know, one of the nice things about buying a business, I used to tell people one of the beautiful things about our business, I, I could die and come back in 20 years and I probably have to rewrite five pages out of the 548. Maybe the interest rates have changed, what have you, but the process remains the same. And it does the same if you're a business owner, and you're looking to buy an ancillary business or a competitor, and it is covered because the process is the same. However, that's one of the cases where I tell people, you know, we need to sit down and have a conversation. I'm going to walk you through some of the things that you should be aware of over and above or as a sidebar to some of these competitive acquisitions, because you may want to do it a little slower. Like you may not want to, yep. dis, you know, the, the other side may not want to disseminate information to you too quickly. There's protections that you need to put in place. Like for your non-disclosure agreement, you may sign a mutual one, but you should both be prevented from stealing employees or customers from each other, those type of things. So there are those peculiarities that you need to add in, those nuances that are related to, you know, growing through acquisition if you're a business owner, and again, if it's an ancillary or competitive uh, acquisition. But on the whole... 90% plus of the process is the exact same, whether you're doing it for that or your first time individual business buyer going out and, 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 and acquiring a business. Richard, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, Richard Parker, how to buy a good business at a great price. If people want to find that book, do they just Google your name, go to richardparker.com or Google how to buy a good business at a great price? What's the best way to find it? Well, probably all of the above. I know that if they go to richardparker.com, I have hundreds of articles that are there. Right. Um, they're free articles, some free reports that I think people will find very helpful and they could learn more about the process and some of which we've talked about today. Um, the, the guide is available there through a third site, my, my other site, or second site, which is Diomo, the abbreviation for doing it on my own, um, diomo.com. But if you go to richardparker.com, they can find all the information and and easily figure out how to go to the course page and order it. And, and uh, at the very least, they'll get themselves a, a real good education. And if anybody has a, a, a specific question related to buying a business or selling and wants, you know, wants a, some feedback from me, they could use our contact us page just put on there to please send it to my attention and i'm happy to jump on a call and help anybody great richard thank you so much you're a great storyteller you're a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and you've had a a storied career so it's been wonderful to have you on the show thank you i appreciate you having me all right folks you know the drill if you like this show please share it with others please give us a great rating on your listening podcast application of choice and stay tuned for future episodes of our show this podcast is sponsored by myself jonathan goldhill and my company the goldhill group where we provide coaching for growing companies i'm jonathan goldhill and my purpose is simple to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.